It's the Mallard Report. Jim Mallard here, host of the Mallard Report. Before we begin, i got to remind you the views and opinions expressed on the show are solely of those of the host and guests. Do not necessarily reflect Evergreen Podcast, Killer Podcast, any sponsors, affiliates, or anybody else. The Mallard Report is recorded live in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. Good evening, everybody. I hope you're having a great holiday season. This is Phil and Shepard, and that I'm confused what day of the week it is. I'm surprised I showed up. Um, Shepard Hoodwin is the author of. Oh my goodness! I I I had I started counting on my fingers, and then I lost track after twelve. How many books do you have out now? <laughs> I think fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've only got ten fingers, and then I used the pen and the notepad, and I lost track. Fourteen. Oh, what? use your toes. <laughs> well, I don't think anybody wants to see that, or you know. Any <laughs> <laughs> so Shepard, how have you been besides busy writing? I have been well. How about you? I've been pretty good overall. So I don't even know where I mean I your first book and White Men for Netwits is over there on my shelf and I enjoyed the world out of it. But Thank you. It, it it sounds to me like you've as I'm looking at all these different books you've kind of spread but not really spread out too far. And the one, well, there's, I mean, there's obviously a couple one, but the one that jumps off to me, of course, unfortunately, we didn't record this conversation before the holiday, <laughs> but it's still relevant. This is going to be good. The Unconditional Love in Politics, because I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I doubt it. That it had the awkward conversations over Christmas dinner about politics, which nobody should be having because it feels like nobody wants to budge on their opinion. <laughs> right. Yes. So what made you want to delve into that? Because that seems like a sticky place to be. Well, um, I am deeply progressive in my political views. Around um, the year 2000, when um, it was Bush versus Gore, I was really startled to discover that some of my friends were supporting George W. Bush and it provoked a sort of um, almost crisis in me. It's like, how do I think about this? Uh, and so I started writing and writing and writing and channeling about it and really giving it a lot of thought. And I wrote a long essay by that title, Unconditional Love and Politics. And um, I had it up on my site. And then I went through a similar uh, crisis but to a greater degree with the election of Donald Trump and finding that I have many friends, people that I like and love and respect, who are kind and good and all, all these positive things, who support Donald Trump. And I just, first of all, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but I also was trying to find peace around that. And so I took out what I had written earlier and I kept rewriting and rewriting it was really a way for me to come to clarity and peace about that and so uh it it helped me a lot and i think it's helped a lot of other people a lot also so i guess we skipped the first step in there i guess pardon me for that you mentioned channeling in there i guess we should <laughs> um go back to that for a minute who who did you channel for this this work and i guess i guess we should go back even a step further for the people who may not be familiar with you, what is channeling? 
Channeling is something that people have been doing throughout history in many different cultures under many different names. Is a way of going into an altered state, maybe a deep trance, maybe a light trance, where you connect with beings who are not in human physical form. It's a way to connect with higher and other intelligences that the universe is full of. And I channel an entity called Michael, or the Michael entity. Uh, some of your listeners may have read one of the many Michael books that are out there. The first Michael book came out in the late 1970s and is called Messages from Michael by an author named Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, and there are four books in her series. Many other people have been channeling Michael over the decades since then. My book on the Michael teachings is called Journey of Your Soul, A Channel Explores the Michael Teachings. And part of my impetus for writing that was also my own effort to try to understand channeling. Uh, so the first hundred pages of that are an exploration of how channeling happens and how to understand it. There are many different ways that people channel. What is unique about the Michael entity and the Michael teachings is that Michael is a group and they've brought through a number of channels a whole elaborate, fascinating body of information about how we as eternal beings set up our lifetimes here on earth. It gives the big picture and how everything fits together. I think in the last time you interviewed me, which was quite a while ago, we talked about your Michael chart. This is a big part of what I do professionally. Is um, I channel these one-page profiles of you as a soul, uh, that have over 20 pieces of information on them that relate to the system that Michael has brought through a number of channels. So, for example, there are seven different kinds of souls. I think that most people who are spiritual or religious believe that there is a part of us that could be called the soul. There's some part of us that is eternal, may be called different things. But I think very few people have stopped to ask, what is the nature of the soul? Are souls different from each other? So in the Michael teachings, we have this highly elaborated understanding about seven different soul types. You and I uh, happen to be the type of soul that Michael has called sage. And sages are communicators. We seek insight above all else. We're really good at explaining things to other people. We are teachers, uh, we uh, absorb knowledge, and we particularly want to know why things are the, the way they, they are. But there are seven types of souls. In total, there's also the scholar soul who collects that knowledge. There are servers and priests who inspire us and take care of us. There are artisans who, like sages, are expressive and who create new things. There are warriors and kings who accomplish in the outer world. And each of the soul types is constructed in a different way. I've channeled over 12,000 of these Michael charts over 35 years for people all around the world. And I teach workshops uh, in this material. I've recently completed two series of workshops over Zoom during the pandemic that have been really great. 
So um, that's a long answer to a short question <laughs> about channeling. Uh, no, it's a good answer, though, because, like I said, I, I feel because... I just looked it up because the last time you were on was 2015, so I feel that we might have grown a little bit around here since then. So we have to kind of <laughs> kind of reframe the conversation, even though it feels like it was just yesterday for me, which is scary to think about. <laughs> yeah, for me too. I mean, really, it does seem like it can't have been that long ago. So, so. I'm just fascinated that it's been that long ago. Now I'm just dumbfounded. Like, I just totally lost my... <laughs> Like, what have I been doing? So, t- how... Now I've got too many questions. So, once you got into the, the habit, I guess, of channeling, how often do you do it now? I've just cut back this year uh, after doing it for 35 years. It was um, taking a toll on my body. Uh, I bring forth a really intense energy when I channel Michael, so if people are in the room with me while I'm channeling, they will see lights, they'll see my face change, plus they'll feel tingling in their body, they'll have all sorts of amazing experiences, and it's very, very cool. But uh, afterwards, I feel exhausted and have trouble sleeping. Um, so uh, I've been doing less of it. I always bring the Michael entity directly in when I channel these charts. And I've now learned how to channel them indirectly, meaning that I connect with them more intellectually but without bringing the the energy in. I also have, for many years, done a session that I call intuitive readings, where I work with your guides, my guides, your essence or higher self, mine, and use my truth sense to bring in the information from whatever source has the best information for you in the moment. So since I've cut back on channeling Michael directly, I've asked Michael to supervise so that the information is as high and correct as possible. And I can always go to them more directly if I need a piece of information that is what they specialize in. But before this year, I was probably channeling them on average three or four times a week. And now it's when I do charts, which is every couple of weeks. The, I was going to say, this, this another simple question, but do you notice a difference now that you're not doing it as much? Yeah, physically I'm feeling better. It, not, it, was, a good, it was a good move for me. I, I'm 67 now, and a lot of people who channel in a deep way uh, have ended up having health problems after a while. Uh, people might be familiar with Edgar Casey, who whose guide told him he should do no more than two sessions in a day, and he was doing six, and it killed him. And a lot of people who channel uh, will tell you that uh, you can only do it for so long. But I have felt like this chart information is so incredibly valuable that I don't ever want to stop doing it. So I'm prioritizing that, and then I'm still working with Michael, but again, uh, less directly than no, no, I, Pat. I meant on the other side of that. Do you feel when you're getting the information, is it is it getting more difficult, or is it easier, or when you're doing it less? Oh well, I would say it's easier. Um, anything that you do over a long period of time you build capacity for it. 
And so there are things that were difficult and slow in the beginning that now come very quickly. And I love working with them in the intuitive readings, and I'm finding the information coming very fluently. That's, I mean, I guess, I guess you're right. Practice makes things better, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sitting here thinking about the show thing, and I'm not sure I'm getting any better at this. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> so the next, the, see, and then I, I see this next title, which is, it just rings to me about compassion for evil. And I don't know if I, I've, it's hard, I guess. So help me out here. How can we be more compassionate for evil people? That book came about very similarly to Unconditional Love and Politics. I really wanted to understand evil. The world is so full of people doing terrible, unconscionable things. And I wanted to know why. I originally channeled Michael about this in, I believe it was 1999. And that got me started on this. So what I first channeled about that was the beginning of this book. And very similarly to Unconditional Love and Politics, uh, over the years I'd rewrite it and rewrite it and think about it and ask more questions. And in the last few years I came up with a draft of this book where I felt like I had gotten it. I had gotten to the core of what I could feel but that I couldn't quite articulate, which is how can loving, caring, compassionate people think about those who are farther over on the spectrum, closer to the evil end, like people who do harm to others, maybe deliberately. And what the conclusion that I came to after deep thought and working through a lot of murky gunk uh, about this is that uh, evil has its roots in fear. And fear comes basically from our body's survival urge. So, in other words, on a hardwired, physical, genetic level, our bodies are wired to be afraid of things that might cause the body not to survive. So, if you or ancestors were in the woods and a big bear came up, feeling fear is a really smart response to that because it's going to put you on high alert and you're going to either run or you're going to turn it around, maybe use the, uh, the flip side of fear, which is anger, and kill the bear, but you're going to survive. So fear has a place in the cosmos, but because humans are sentient creatures, meaning that we can reason, we can think, we have a more complex intellect than pure animals, our fears, fear about survival always is the bottom line, our fears get tied in with things that are not actually going to affect our physical survival. So for example, on the Michael chart we have the seven obstacles or the seven fears um, which are psychological fears. So, for example, if someone has an obstacle we call arrogance, it's defined as a fear of being judged and being found wanting. 
Now, if you don't have that as your chief obstacle, you might say, well, yeah, it's no fun for people to criticize me, but, you know, I can cope with it, and maybe they'll make a good suggestion, and I can learn something from it. And if someone is excessively critical and judgmental all the time, I might avoid them. But it's not so triggering as for the person who has this as their chief obstacle. And for that person, they believe that if they're criticized, they are literally going to die. They may not put it in those words, but they act like someone judging me is going to lead to my death. And it may, in fact, come from a past life in which that literally happened. So let's say, for example, in a past life you were a wonderful healer. Uh, people came to you and they got better. And uh, some people in your community who were very uptight uh, accused you of practicing witchcraft. And they had you killed because they just didn't understand what you were doing. Like, how did you know to use those herbs? Or what did you do with your hands there? And so you may come in to your next life where your strategy to survive is that I must make sure nobody ever judges me because last time they did, I literally died. So now you have this psychological association. And when you're strategizing for your survival inaccurately, like in this case um, being so committed to making sure that that nobody judges you and so you judge them first for example that's where evil starts to happen because people get really irrational around these fears and so for example the person in extreme arrogance might take an approach that says i'm going to judge you before you have a chance to judge me and therefore i will survive so these these survival strategies, and I could talk about these all day because, first of all, there's seven of these obstacles. But all of these, if they get really extreme, can lead to evil because the fear is so great that the person is more concerned with their own survival than doing right toward other people. And fear blinds us, and it can become, um, can even lead to insanity because. Uh, the fear is so great. So one of the things that we work with in the Michael teachings is how to identify our chief obstacle, our chief fear, and our secondary ones, and recognize them as being unreasonable, unnecessary, and learn to dismantle those psychological structures so that we can be happier, because fear will always contract us and make us unhappy. The most evil people, meaning those who are absolutely ruthless and lacking in compassion, um, those are often people who were severely traumatized, who were themselves treated very, very badly, and they did not have the soul-level tools with which to deal with them. And so they just became hardened. They closed their hearts and they became totally fear-obsessed. And once in a while, a soul will become so contracted that there's just no way for any light to get in. And sometimes those souls will, with the help of their guides, keep coming back trying to solve that problem. How do I get growing again? How do I open my heart? How can I... Um, 
stop being so utterly controlled by fear. And in a few rare instances, after many tries, uh, the soul and their guides just give up and say, okay, end of the line here. And the soul is literally dismantled rather than continuing on in its uh, process. But those people who do a lot of evil that are still here on the physical plane, uh, it has generally been seen that there is not with there is still some hope that those people can work out their things and begin to open to to greater light. The way that I see it is that it's on a spectrum, and you could see 100% good as one end of the spectrum, 100% evil as the other end of the spectrum, and nobody is at 100% either way. So all of us are somewhere in the middle, like maybe like a really kind, open-hearted, clean energy person would be at like 94. And a really shut down, nasty, um, judgmental, uh, vindictive person might be at 12. And the vast majority of people, like any bell curve, uh, are in the middle somewhere. And so there's some, sometimes they act out of love and kindness and generosity, and sometimes they act out of fear and negativity and judgmentalness, and so they're a mixed bag. And maybe someone in spirit would be able to read their energy and say, okay, they're averaging out to 54 or 36 or 71 or whatever, but this is not something that is given to us to see. So uh, I think here in the body, you know, we can feel some people being more negative than others, and maybe we want to keep some distance with some people, and that's fine. But uh, even in the people that we've had really bad experiences with, other people might have had good experiences with them. So we don't want to judge other people or where they might be on the spectrum, but just simply try to be more positive and loving ourselves, try to have compassion for the suffering of people who are more on the evil side of the spectrum because it's impossible to be happy and to live in so much negativity. So they are not happy. They may feel temporarily like, oh, goody, I got what I wanted, and that might make them temporarily feel safer. But there's no possibility of real happiness or joy uh, except in love and in light. And so if we can look at people in that compassionate way, it helps us step out of this endless warring. Um, like uh, people who make movies often talk about the battle of good versus evil, and they frame things in that really simplistic way. But the weird thing is that most of the people that could objectively be said to be more on the evil end of the spectrum don't think that they're evil most of the time. They think that they're doing what is necessary to survive or that they will give you what is to them a perfectly good reason for their behavior. So if you take all of humanity and you say, okay, all the evil people stand over here. Hardly anybody would do that. 
And the people who would admit to it probably still have a conscience and probably aren't as bad <laughs> as you know, a lot of the people who are really doing horrible things to others. And so if you identify as good but in battle with evil, you are stuck in the karmic wheel. So you're still fighting that battle, and that battle is not helpful. It's sort of like those those dolls that you push them down and they pop back up. And if you're thinking you're the good person fighting evil, the person that is in opposition to you might think the exact same thing. They might think they're the good ones and you're the evil ones. So, if, for example, all of these religious wars that we've had throughout history, well, I'm the Christian and I stand for what is good and I'm fighting for Jesus. But, I mean, Jesus told us to love each other. So how can that be? And the people they're fighting probably think the same thing. So what we really want to do here with compassion is to step out of the battle of good versus evil and try to have love and compassion for all beings. Now, that is not to say that we become weak and soft. There are times when people are on a rampage doing terrible things and they need to be stopped. So that's where, you know, maybe the military or the police come in and they restrain people who are, let's say, they're murdering a bunch of people. Yes, you, you need to stand up to violation. And at the same time, you need to be compassionate to those people who are doing these terrible things because a lot of times they are uh, somewhere on the spectrum of mental illness. They have great fear. Uh, a lot of them do terrible things under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So we need to get them help. And you do find that, like in some of the Scandinavian countries, they're very much more oriented in their criminal justice system to healing and rehabilitation. Whereas in America, we're so much about punishing people, which basically teaches them to be more effective criminals. It's not showing them the light of love and compassion. So if you're interested in your own spiritual growth, then, then we need to stop demonizing other people and we might objectively say, yeah, that person's very negative or they're doing a lot of hurtful things. But to acknowledge that in a non-judgmental way that just says, okay, what can we do about this? And try to take effective actions without this emotionally charged attacking kind of thing. Because ironically, when we go into this attacking point of view, that puts us more on the evil end of the spectrum because then we're more fear-based. So I wrote this book for myself and, um, and share it with others. See, you mentioned either nobody's 100% good or 100% evil, but how do we get 10% more towards the good side? I guess is the easiest way to ask what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, yeah, the spiritual path is a lot about looking in the mirror. And that means relinquishing defenses. Defensiveness is the biggest obstacle toward growth, whether it's spiritual growth or psychological, emotional growth. And so the problem is, is that fear has caused us to build a lot of defenses around us because fear is defensive. 
So if we can start to dismantle our defenses and say, for example, if someone criticizes us, if we can deliberately say, ouch, that hurt, but I'm willing to look at that, there may be truth in there. Maybe they're 100% right and I need to apologize. Maybe they're 50% right. I can definitely grow in this area. What could I have done better in this situation? This is how we grow. And if we're stuck in our defenses, we cannot do that. And then it's just working every day to be more motivated by love and to be less motivated by fear. So uh, deliberately affirming the humanity of other people who are different from us, that we maybe don't understand very well, maybe that we don't even like very much. And I also think a lot of our own healing comes from owning our own feelings without uh, thinking that they're necessarily accurate. So it's okay to feel angry and the anger may not in fact be justified. We can hold both of those apparently contradictory attitudes at the same time. We are all human. We all at times feel anger. A lot of anger is misplaced. It's uh, it results from not getting what we wanted, that maybe we don't have a right to demand. It maybe comes from false expectations. It can also come from legitimate reasons, like someone violated me. They did something truly harmful to me that they had no right to do, and anger is there to get us to take action. But then the question is, what action are we going to take? Are we going to be defensive are we going to return harm with more harm? Or are we going to let the higher angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln put it, control and stop and think and say, okay, how can I make this situation genuinely better? How can I communicate to this person something valuable? Is this person willing to hear something that might get through to their conscience? Can I tell them how their actions made me feel? Or do I need to contact law enforcement about this violation? You know, like let's say someone broke the law in hurting, hurting you or whatever. But to think, to use our ability to love and to reason to solve the problem effectively rather than going into automatic pilot. So an automatic pilot, uh, we want to do harm to the other person just like they did to us and that that again is normal it's how we're hardwired but it's not the best solution so if we want to grow we have to look at how can i handle this constructively yes positively but maybe positive is the wrong word here because um like like i said maybe contacting law enforcement and having the person arrested is the highest good. And someone might say, well, that's not positive, but it may actually be the highest good in the situation. Maybe it will prevent this person from doing harm to others. But let's say, you know, it's your life partner and it's a lesser kind of harm, but it, it, it was a, a crossed a boundary or whatever. Then we need really good communication skills. We need to be able to say what we felt Let's say I felt attacked, 
and to say that without attacking the other person, to help them to understand in any way that it's possible for them to understand. So, yeah, I think if you are really motivated, let's say you're at the 50% mark, and you say, okay, I want to uh, become more and more centered in love every day. If you work on it every day through a spiritual practice, that could be uh, immersing yourself in nature, in beauty, in chanting, in affirmations, in prayer, in contemplation, in journaling. I mean, there's just many, many paths to growing. If you commit to doing something every day, you could get from 50 to close to 100 in a lifetime. It's just all a matter of being willing to do the work, willing to learn, and seeking out people who know what they're talking about who can teach you. So having good teachers is also really valuable for that. And it's all about motivation. If you're not motivated to change or heal, which most people are not, then their growth is going to come the hard way. They're going to do things that aren't so smart, that aren't helpful, that aren't kind. They're going to experience the results of that, and it's going to hurt them, because what goes around comes around, or karma. And they're going to grow, but they're going to grow very, very slowly. But if you say, wherever I am on this spectrum, I, I want to become as love-motivated as I can be, and you devote every day to that, you can make a, a huge amount of progress. Not many people do choose this, but it's possible. I hope some people try, at least attempt. I think that's what we can hope for at this point. Okay, let's pause our conversation for a second. Shepard, i got to give you the opportunity to tell people about your website and where they can find all these wonderful books and, you know... Sell yourself for a minute here. Okay. Uh, my website is myfullname.com, Shepherd Hoodwin, and that's spelled S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-H, as in Henry, O-O-D-W-I-N.com. And my books are there, links to uh, buying them on Kindle or in paperback are there on the site. And um, there's a lot of other material there, a lot of free information about the Michael teachings. Uh, I, I think the Michael teachings are utterly fascinating and probably the most valuable tool for growth that most people have never heard of. <laughs> it's really, really good stuff. And in fact, could people hunt down our previous interview where we talked about your Michael chart. Do you yes. still have that available online? And, and I will link it in the show notes for this one so when they're listening to this one they can go back to that one. And have you ever posted your Michael chart uh, on your site so that people could refer to that while listening to the interview? I don't think so. So you might want to do that but you, on my website there are also sample charts and there is a written uh, explanation of three of them, so people can get an idea of how you can use this information to understand yourself and other people. This was um, the Michael entity uh, told us that they brought this whole system, which is, is you know a very complex and multifaceted system, sort of like the way astrology is a complete system 
although this is not astrology. They brought us this so that we could understand ourselves and others better, and that would free us to do our spiritual work, because we would stop wasting so much time scratching our heads about other people. We would understand them better. So we can look at somebody else and we could say, well, I'm a sage soul, and they're a warrior, and so they're wired differently, and they are acting according to their nature just as I'm acting according to mine. And I don't have to judge them for being different. Now I understand the forces that are work, whether they're the positive side of those energies or the negative sides, at least I now can relax because, okay, I get it, I understand. And I understand why I'm here. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever read other spiritual material that better explains why we're here on Earth. My book, Journey of Your Soul, goes into that a lot. So, um, yeah, I think people will find a lot of good stuff there. If they get really into it, they can email me. Uh, they can get on my perspectives email list. And uh, I do do workshops, so they could also uh, sign up for a Zoom workshop in the next year, that sort of thing. So I, I, this is going to sound like a horrible question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, because I feel like, you know, it's been a, a long time since we talked. So I'm going to ask this question. Is it possible to change your your soul? I know that sounds ridiculous, but... Because I feel like I'm at a different place today than I was the last time we talked. Well, the Michael chart doesn't really tell you too much about how you're using these various building blocks of your soul and personality. It only tells you what those building blocks are. So um, there is something called soul age. And uh, when I channeled your chart in 2012, you were already seventh level old manifesting the same. So there was sort of no room to go forward there. But in all these years as you do the work, you will be refining how you use these energies and doing them more and more in their positive poles. So, for example, uh, you'll see that you have a goal called growth, and growth has a positive pole of comprehension, a negative pole of confusion where you're overwhelmed. So if you work to be more and more in your positive pole of growth, you're going to have more clarity of understanding and you're going to be less confused. But it's the same energy. It's still your goal. Or you, you have an attitude we call idealist, which is also mine. An idealist looks at the world and sees how things can be changed for the better. And in the positive pole, you pull things together and you really do improve things. The negative pole is abstraction where you get stuck in airy-fairy ideas about how things could be made better that aren't really practical. So as you refine your energy, you become more and more effective in bringing positive change into the world and less stuck in your head in faulty ideas about how that could be done. So you see, you can just go through your whole chart and see that you've come a long way in learning how to use your traits in increasingly positive ways. So I hate to ask this question, because you've got 14 done, but are you working on another book? 
Always. <laughs> Always. I, I'm 67 and I can't die because I have um, millions of words on my uh, computer that need to be uh, whittled down into books. Uh, over decades, if I send someone an email that I feel like is something that I might want to expand upon in a book, I copy and paste it into a Word file. So um, my next book, which will not be ready for a very long time, I'm calling Living from the Inside Out. And it's my writings about spiritual growth that do not pertain to the technical Michael teachings. In other words, they're not about the chart material. And uh, I have probably half a million words there, and yet turning it into a book is a huge, huge process of whittling it down and organizing it and avoiding repetition and so forth. So that's... Um, w when I have free time, I work on writing, and, and sometimes it can be months when I don't, and then I have a free day and I feel drawn into it. And sometimes something just begs to be written, and it won't let me alone until I write it, and so that's what I do. I was say, I sent an email the other day, and I got it back. Somebody, um, how do I say this nicely? Fixed it for me. <laughs> and is there, they're like, is that what you meant to say? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I said the first time. And they're like, not quite. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I appreciate the writers out there because I, I just don't have it. Writing is a great way to clarify your own thinking. I have never failed to look at something that I wrote in the past and see a lot of ways to improve it. And I wonder, how on earth did I miss this before? But you really just can't take in everything. And that's a good uh, analogy for our growth in general, that every day, if we're awake to it, we can see things about ourselves and our life that we missed before. But we go back to it and we say, okay, this can be this can be made better. Uh, this was sort of in the back of my consciousness. Now I'm bringing it to the front. I'm shining a light on it. I'm making it better. But yeah, writing is an endless process of that. And it's kind of frustrating because I'm a, I, I like to say I'm a recovering perfectionist. I would like everything to be perfect. And I publish something and then I look at it later and I think, oh, no, no, I should have done this. I should have said it that way. But people have already bought it and read it. And oh, no, you know, I want it to be better. So, okay, so I'm going to ask this question kind of in a loaded basis because I don't want to get too specific, but I just want to kind of ask the broad question. So bear with me here. With all the events of the last year, year and a half, whatever, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, all the, everything. Ha have people become more spiritual, less spiritual, or it's not really a factor? Because you've been doing this for a while. I think a little more spiritual, just a little bit more. Uh, there are many who have been seeking since a very early age for many, many decades. But I think that the more that current events put a squeeze on people's former views about reality, the more people are saying, there's something I'm not getting here. There's something that I'm not understanding that I need to understand. And that could set off searching in people. And the more uncomfortable we are, the more likely we are to say, okay, 
I'm willing to change. I'm willing to look at things. I'm willing to examine my earlier beliefs. Because a lot of people find comfort in not changing, in holding on to the beliefs that they've had uh, maybe from childhood. And yet that may not be serving people very well. So uh, it's um, the worse things get, the more people are likely to ask some questions that they really needed to be asking for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, I find comfort in um, beating up what I believe, if that makes any sense. Like, i got to know now, I've kind of, you know, accepted a few things, now I'm kind of like, well, why do I believe that? Why is that? If that's going to define me, you know, even like this show, if it's going to define me for the rest of my life, well... What's good about it? Why why keep doing it? All these fun questions that, you know, I'm sure you have, too. A huge part of spiritual growth is becoming the witness or observer to ourselves. This is a big part of meditation practice, where you sit in quiet and you learn to observe your thoughts floating by. And if you can observe your thoughts, then clearly you are not your thoughts, because then who's observing them? So the ability to observe our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, and to question them, and to say, you know what, it ain't necessarily so. Just because I believe it, it doesn't mean that it's true or completely true. And if you have the ability to witness and observe what you have believed in the past, then you can change it. And that might bring you a lot more happiness than you've had before, because it's possible that what we've been believing for a very long time doesn't serve us, doesn't help us, doesn't make us happier. I think the clearest sign of enlightenment, whatever that word may prove to mean, is joy. And so learning to have more joy uh, shows that you're, you're moving in the right direction. A lot of people get very, very serious and heavy around religious or spiritual topics. And I think that joy is what really lets the light of God's love shine through. And that's what what we should be striving for, is more joy, more happiness. And the benefit of the spiritual path is that it brings us more joy and happiness. It may be difficult temporarily. So temporarily we might go through the dark night of the soul because all of these things that we thought were true turn out not to be, and it can uh, incite some crises in us. But if we're willing to stay with it, eventually we may come out on the other end with an enlarged capacity for happiness. So why else be on a spiritual path if it isn't going to increase our happiness and well-being? And at the same time, our ability to be of service to others, that they're not mutually exclusive. Our own happiness brings more light and help to other people. You're not helping anyone else by being miserable along with them. You help them by learning how to be happy and then passing that along. Yeah, and I'm sitting here thinking about the first book that you read, which is Enlightenment for Nitwits, which I can't thank you enough for that. Again, I seem like I'm bringing this full circle as we're rounding down with time here, but it kind of opened my eyes to the the lighter side, but the heavier side. It's kind of weird how you, when you start asking simple questions, it kind of 
gets in the bigger questions. And if you're not having fun, what are we doing here? I guess this is where I want to go with this. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Jim, that is my humor book, which I published in 2011. It's not my first book. My first three yeah. books were Journey of Your Soul, Meditations for Self-Discovery, and Loving from Your Soul. I first published those back in 1994. But uh, Enlightenment for Nitwits was my humor book. And uh, I have recently revised it so that it, it stays up to date. And and I, I too also love this book. So it's hopefully will make you laugh out loud a whole bunch of times, but it also is designed to uh, provoke insights into spirituality and the human condition. So I hope people get uh, both. And of course, enlightenment has the word light in it. And one of the great ways of bringing enlightenment is to lighten up through laughter. So I think comedians are often uh, great bringers of enlightenment because they make us look at things in a different way. They flip things around. They blow our minds. And, and that is often a very good thing if the humor is meant with love rather than just to ridicule or to be mean-spirited, which it sometimes is. Yeah, but I think anything that you can do to make yourself, again, if we're not having fun, what are we doing, right? Like, it just kind of, it seems so simple when you say it, and I've said it several times now, but it's definitely not as simple as it sounds. <laughs> the Michael Entity teaches us that we're all growing, but we can, there's basically two ways you can grow. You can grow through joy or through pain. And most people have, by default, chosen to grow through pain because they're not waking up, they're not taking responsibility for their choices, they're not learning how to live in joy, they're just reacting to things like a ping-pong ball bounces off uh, a surface. But the path of growing through joy, which is the path of enlightenment, is uh, something that cultivates love and laughter and peace and it's not Pollyannish, though. I mean, it doesn't deny all the evil in the world. Uh, granted, some spiritual people do have their head in the sands about what's going on in our crazy world. But enlightenment does not require that you refuse to acknowledge all the evil in the world. It really, though, is the most practical solution to it, that uh, if there's darkness bringing light, is what's going to get rid of the darkness, not battling the darkness. So as Buddha said, you know, light a candle. And that's something that we can each do. So I've got another loaded question for you, but not nearly as loaded as the other one. Because you've, okay. you've, you've mentioned being 67 a couple times, and then you mentioned doing these Zoom sessions, and I'm thinking to myself, I know he's always been an adapter to technology, but this has this has to be different because there's the, I mean, there's a difference between having this conversation over the phone and doing this conversation in person. So are you, how do you feel about all that? Well, I love doing the workshops in person and it's just more bonding that way. But on the other hand, the, the, the workshops are over a weekend and they're all day Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And they take a great deal of energy. Whereas over Zoom, you have two hours once a week, and they're very concentrated hours. And people are in the comfort of the, their homes, usually, for that. And I like that also very much. I have encouraged the people attending the workshops to um, stay afterwards, stay in the Zoom room and socialize if they 
feel that other people in the group uh, have something interesting that they'd like to communicate with. Uh, and so people have made some friendships that way. So I would say I like doing the Zoom workshops very, very much, but there are some things that we simply cannot do over Zoom. So, for example, when I was doing uh, workshops, I did five uh, trips to Europe doing workshops there since 2017. And the people sponsoring me would uh, conduct family constellations with the group. And we haven't even tried to do that over Zoom. So that's a really cool thing to do. So th yeah, there are pros and cons, but um, I think Zoom is fantastic, really. It, it is interesting. Like, I mean, because I've been communicating with people via the Internet for longer than I care to remember right now. Uh, <laughs> right? But it's different because I'm just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation and we're just having a good time. But when you're trying to teach or communicate, like have a, a group conversation, it gets a little rough, I believe. Huh. Well, um, we've done very well in the workshops. People raise their hands. I call on them. It's orderly. Um, so... Yeah, that's it, that is like I said, it's been great, really. I'm I'm happy to hear that you're a fan of it because I was I was wondering there for a minute, and I figured that's why I just asked. <laughs> I, I've got my first Macintosh in 1985, and I wouldn't say that you know I know uh, as much as an IT guy, but I've I've had to stay up for the things that I've needed to do, and if I don't know how to do something, I call tech support or I I Google it or whatever and figure it out. So. Um, it's been a technology has been a huge part of my life for a long time now. I'm going to make a joke that's going to get me slapped. Ready? Of course you ready. Know to, you know to turn it on and off. You you could be just as good as any tech guy out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I hate when I call somebody and they say, "Did you try turning it off? Did you try?" You know, I'm like, "No." I, yeah. Is it is it plugged it, in? Yeah. Oh, really? Why didn't, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes I, I, I printers are my arch nemesis. It'll yeah, print, I was dealing with my printer this week. Yes, it'll print four sheets of the five-page document, and then the one you need to sign on gets lost in the ether. I don't know where it is. <laughs> well, you know, it's my worldview is that there are pros and cons to just about everything, and very often you can weigh the pros and cons and you can say, yeah, the pros vastly outweigh the cons or the cons vastly outweigh the pros or sometimes you'll say, well, they're kind of equal. So with computers and such, um, the last couple of weeks I've had endless problems with my computer, ended up having to erase it and start over with everything. So it's been a huge number of hours, but I wouldn't be without it. They're just so useful. Like, um, like in 1989 or 90, I started putting my Michael charts onto the computer, and it was such a godsend because now I have a database with these 12,000 charts, and I can instantly search for all the people whose charts I've done, and I can develop statistics and that. So it's a blessing, and yet sometimes, as you know, it's a really big hassle, too. <laughs> I love it because I fired my computer up the night and told me keyboard error, hit escape to continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I looked at that for a minute and then I just pushed a button and restarted and it worked. But I had that moment of head escape on the keyboard when the keyboard has the air. Oh boy, some programmer out there 
Oh, well, anyways. I, I'm probably going to get slapped for the IT joke, so I better stop now while I'm ahead. <laughs> well, you and I both have the attitude in this lifetime called idealist. And so you and I are both always looking at everything in terms of how it could be improved. And so you're probably like looking at this IT and thinking, why are they doing this? They could be doing it that way. And that is what the idealist contributes to the whole, ideas about how to make things better. So it's just natural that those things will stand out to you. Well, Shepard, I, I help people listen to these ideas once in a while, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, my friend, it has been too long since we've talked. I'm sorry about that. But it feels like it doesn't feel like it's been that long, though, so... It really doesn't. Well, let's do it again a little sooner next time. We'll have to. Uh, have a uh, good evening out there. And uh, send some sunshine this, sunshine this way. It was trying to snow here this afternoon. Will do. <laughs> Thanks, Shepard. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Let's see. There's that button. That's our friend Shepard Hoodwin. The last time he was Ooh. on was March 2015. And the first time he was on was October 2012. Right about the world, right about the time the world of mind said was going to end. I ended, and I ended up with him a little bit early. Um, I seen some sad news, and I wanted to take a moment and comment on it in real time. Uh, actually, my wife, when I was downstairs getting getting my drink, told me before the show that John Madden had passed away. And um, I've been joking with Brian Parsons of the Paranormal News Insider about sports topics tonight, and I think he is very. Feel, he'll echo these sentiments, of course. Um, very sad to hear that news that John Madden had passed away, the voice of football for the majority of my childhood until he retired, and Pat Summerall, and all those games on Fox, all the Thanksgiving games, all the big games. So, uh, boom, right? And for those of you who don't know John Madden, I'm sure you've heard that or seen Madden football or are very familiar with some of his work. I mean, you've You've probably heard him even though you don't know the name. You know the voice, I'm sure. So we just have to pause tonight and reflect upon that because, like I said, it was part of my growing up. So I'm sure somewhere along the line, part of what you're hearing tonight is due to John Madden. So we have to take a moment and honor that. And then, of course, with this being the last show of 2021, before we stare down the barrel of 2022, I've got to take a moment and reflect about what 2021 has been. It's been a, a learning year, and we can't also, oh, goodness grief, Geo Observation pops up in the chat room. Madden was a successful coach, and that was before my time, but boy, he was, and gave my Steelers problems. I have to remember all that. I forgot all about that, too. NFL Hall of Famer. But 2022 will be, we'll be right around the corner. 2021, successful uh, in different ways. I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Evergreen brings to the show. Looking forward to seeing what kind of guests I can get lined up for 2022 and continue to roll downhill in the year 11. Good grief almighty as we bring year 10 to a close. Oh boy, I don't know where time goes, guys. It just keeps going. Like I've, It doesn't feel like it's been six years since I talked to Shepard, but man, it just goes and goes. I hope you are enjoying this as much as I am. It's been a wild ride and I have no plans to slung down. But next time we talk, it'll be 2022. So have a good night. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, 
all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.